Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. As Pastor Lardy, who started our series last week, made clear for us that Luke's gospel, if you read it in its entirety, is full of stories about pairs of people. And some of those those pairs are male and female. Sometimes they are both females. Sometimes they are both men. But the theme of two people running together and responding to Jesus runs through the entire narrative all the way up to Passion Week and all the way through Passion Week. And Pastor Lardy brought out the first passion pair last week, and that was Barabbas, or Barabbas as some people say, and Jesus. Um, Today we want to look at the two thieves or criminals that were crucified on Jesus' left hand and his right. And next week we're going to look at the pair that were walking down the Emmaus Road after Easter is over. But I have to ask the question, why? Why do you think uh, Luke structured his gospel this way? Why does he choose to use these stories? Because we all know that there were a lot of stories about Jesus that were not recorded in the Gospels or in the Bible. In fact, a lot of the stories that he tells about pairs of people are not recorded in any other place but in Luke's Gospel. So why did he choose these stories? Why did he put them in this way? And I think it's important for us to answer that question, and here's why. Because continually throughout this gospel, Luke wants to confront his readers and each one of us this morning with this truth, that we have to respond to who Jesus is, to what he has done, and what that means for our lives. You see, because Luke wants us to think this. We have to decide. We have to respond to the message of Jesus. It is a choice that we all have to make. Truly, when it comes to Jesus, there is no neutrality. See, it's a choice that he wants you to make. And so he brings that out by using pairs of people. And often one chooses for Jesus and one chooses to reject Jesus. And can I say nicely, that is one every single person in this room must do today. See, he brings these pairs of people, these two thieves, these two criminals, one on each side of him, because he wants you to see yourself as one or the other. He wants to insert your life into the Easter story. So it's not just a fact of history. It's not just a long event, long time ago that no longer is relevant. Luke wants you to know that you are one of those pairs of people. You're in them. And the story is not just about them a long time ago. It is a story about you right now. And there's a question in doing so that you have to answer. How will you respond to Jesus? You see, all throughout Luke 23, which is our chapter today, there are a lot of different people who respond to Jesus. In the beginning of this chapter, Herod, who is the puppet king that Rome has set up in Judea, He responds to that. Uh, Religious leaders respond to Jesus. Pilate, who is the Roman governor, he stands before Jesus and has to respond to him. There are all kinds of various groups of women along the side side of the road when Jesus carries his cross. There are women at the cross. There are women at the tomb. They all have to respond to Jesus. There's the two criminals on the cross, of course. There's the Roman centurion who, after Jesus dies, says, this must be a righteous man. There is Joseph of Arimathea, who was of the council and the Sanhedrin. He was a religious Pharisee and very strict. 
He even takes Jesus' body and has him buried. See, every single person throughout this chapter has this in common. They respond to Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what it means for their life. But let me say it a little differently. Let me dig a little deeper. Let me look a little closer at these people. You see, some of them are moral outsiders. The thieves on the cross, the criminals who are there because they have committed a capital crime. They are there for sedition, rebellion. They have murdered people. And they are receiving their just dues according to the words of the first thief. See, but they're moral outsiders. They're apprehensible. They're people who don't fit into society because of their revolutionary ways. And they're on the outside. They're zealots. But see, then there are the moral insiders, complete opposites. They're the religious leaders, the ones that everyone looks up to. There's Joseph of Arimathea, who has a clout and authority. There are people who are moral insiders who are anti-Jesus, and there are insiders who are pro-Jesus. See, there's all kinds of people that have to respond. There are racial outsiders, according to Jews anyways. The centurions, Pilate, Herod, they're all pagans. They would be goyim in Hebrew. They would be outsiders. They are not God's people. There are social outsiders. Women had no say in this first century culture. They, their, their testimony was not valid in court. They were outsiders socially. But here's what Luke wants us to know as he puts all these stories of these people together. He wants you and I to know that everyone, and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what category that you fit in. Out of all the categories I've missed, you can put yourself in one of them. You could say, Pastor Walker, hey, you know, I tried to be the religious insider. That didn't work. And I maybe more slid to the moral outsider. Or maybe I'm a little bit of both, or I think I am. Or maybe I'm just not really interested in God and I only came here because friends asked me and it is a religious holiday so I thought I'd try it. See, whatever category that you fit into, here's what Luke wants you to think. Everyone, everyone must respond to Jesus. Here's why. Because whether you're an insider or an outsider, whether you're moral or immoral, whether you're male or female, religious or pagan, rich or poor, it's none of those things. None of those things make you right with God. None of those things can bring you forgiveness of sins and salvation. It is only determined by your response to Jesus. And that question is this. Will he be king? Oh, he is king, but will he be your king? See, he offers forgiveness, but will you receive his forgiveness? Will you come to the conclusion like some who stood at the cross on that day deciding whether he would be king? Would you come to the conclusion that he died and he rose again, not just historically, although that's true, but he died for you, see? He died for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that he would respond someday and say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we want to take briefly this morning in these few minutes we have to take a look at this passion pair of the two criminals on Jesus' left hand and on the right, and they're going to show us how to respond to Jesus. One of them is going to show us how to respond, and the other one's going to show us how not to respond. And at the end, we're going to see how Jesus responds to us. So let's unpack them one at a time. Your response to Jesus. Over the cross of Jesus, which was on a main road, thoroughfare, 
and very low to the ground so people could walk by, jeer, mock, spit on you, which they would all do. And he's on a road there, and above the sign of every one of the criminals, now Jesus being a criminal, that's what they would have thought of him, a revolutionary, always on the Latin term is titulus. It's the title. And what they put on there, and they did it in three languages, Latin, Aramaic, Greek, they would have put, so everyone would know who he was and what he did, and then you would be able to respond to him. And so this gospel says that he is the king of the Jews. That's verse 37 in our text, the very verse right before what we read. Matthew's gospel says it's Jesus the king they put up on there. And then John's gospel says Jesus of Nazareth the king. And through those various versions, we get the idea that it would have said in its totality, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. See, his name and his crime. Yes, it was his crime. His crime was telling people that he was the king. See, many people saw him on the cross. They saw his name. They saw what he said that he was and what he was here to do. But see, they didn't respond positively. But like the one thief and the one criminal, they mocked him. In fact, read it carefully. It is a theme all throughout that all kinds of people watched Jesus die. Even though he said he was king, and they mocked him. Herod in 2311, it says, and they treated him with contempt and mocked him. And they mocked him by bringing what's called splendid clothing. It was royalty. They got a robe that looked like one that Herod, who was a king himself, would wear. And they put it on Jesus, and they hit him a few times, and they bowed the knee to him and said, oh, Jesus, the king. And they mocked him. They thought, what a joke that Jesus would think that he is king. Add to that list the religious leaders in verse 35, it says, and they scoffed at him. You know what scoffing is? It's to say things in in a a mocking way, to make fun of someone, to demean them, to shame them. He saved others, they said, and he himself, let him save himself. If he's the Christ, and always think Christ is king, if he's really the king of God, the chosen of God, let him come down from the cross. Again, add to the list the Roman soldiers in verses 36 and 37. It says, and they also mocked him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And basically, here's what they're saying. If you are the king, why don't you start acting like it? Because look at you. You're no king. How could you possibly be? Why? Why is it that people, soldiers, religious leaders, people who even knew the Bible... Why is it that they can stand and look at the Son of God who says he's the king and mock him? What is it about them? Hear me. What is it about us? See, the mocking reveals our heart's response to Jesus and his claims. Can I ask you, what are they mocking about? They're not mocking about him being a good preacher. They're not mocking about him for he says he was a wise teacher. They're not mocking him because he went around healing people that were hurting and sickness and disease. They're not mocking him for any of those things. They're mocking him for the very thing that's written right above his head. You know why they're mocking him? You said you're a king, and we don't like it. 
You think you're going to be the one to save us? You're the one that's going to rule over us? See, one of the two criminals in our text in verse 39 says, are you not the king? If you're the king, save yourself and save us. Can I tell you this morning, it's not a pretty picture, but here's the reality. We are hostile to the claim of Jesus that he's king. Anne Rice, who's a pretty well-known author, um, has been secular, was secular, I mean, had no place for God in her life for the vast majority of her life. But a number of years back, she publicly went out and said, I have now become a Christian. And one of the reasons that she became a Christian was because of the result of her writing a novel about Jesus. She's a novelist, and she wanted to write a novel about him because she didn't believe in him at the time. So here's what she did. She started to study all the historical background and all of the scholarship about Jesus for the last 100 years. And what she found stunned her. And she says this, all the arguments against the Gospels of Jesus lacked coherence and were full of conjecture. And all the criticisms, they weren't valid, she said. The books that she read piled up absurd assumptions and conclusions that were based on no real data at all. She says, and I quote, the whole case for the non-divine Jesus, in other words, people who are trying to say Jesus really wasn't God, he wasn't who he says he was, was never made in anyone's books or articles. Not only was the case not made, but I found something even more surprising. Listen to this. I discovered that these scholars, many of them who had devoted their entire life to New Testament scholarship, they disliked Jesus. In fact, for many of them, they openly despised and detested that Jesus Christ said he was the king. She said they wrote trying to disprove him and using their whole life studying the Bible to disprove it was true because they didn't like him. And so she says, why would people spend their life doing that? And the answer was they didn't like his claims. They didn't want him to be king. You see, we don't like his claims to be king, and here's why. Because it forces us, hear me, it forces us to make a decision. It's all or nothing. He is either the king or he is not. He's either the savior or he is not. He is either the Lord or he is not. Most of us here this morning, if you were asked and confronted personally, I don't think that you would be upset. In fact, you'd probably be okay if we talked about Jesus as a good preacher. If we thought he was a wise teacher and gave us some good principles of how to love people and be kind to people, we'd be okay with it. If we talked about Jesus and the stories of healing people and making sick people well, we would be okay with that. But the moment that it starts going to the fact that he says, I'm the unique son of God, I'm the Christ, I'm the king, I'm the savior of the world, we're not okay with that. We're not okay with that. So you have to either completely worship him or despise him. And we don't want those two choices to be the only ones. We want our options to be kept open. We want to be able to say, I know Jesus and I am religious, but I still want my autonomy. I still want to call the shots in my life. I want to say he's king, but live as if I am. I read a short story not too long ago called A Good Man is Hard to Find. 
And it's about a criminal who attacked a family, broke into their home, and was going to rob everything they had and then kill each one of them. One of the people in the home was the grandmother. And in a conversation with the criminal, she was pleading for her life. And so she's trying to convince the criminal not to kill them, and particularly her. And so she begins to have this conversation, and she says to the criminal, you know, deep down, I think you're really a good man. A really good man. I know you're good. You just have one thing that you need. You need Jesus, it says. The criminal turns to her and says, Jesus? Listen to him. Jesus throws everything out of balance. If he did what he said, then it should be nothing for you to throw everything away and follow him. But if he didn't, then it should be nothing for you to enjoy yourself, spend the rest of your time the way you want, by killing, by stealing, and by burning your house down. Do you see what he's saying? Everything. Jesus throws everything off. The criminal in the story knows this. See, if Jesus is king, it's an all or nothing decision. See, what I'm doing, I'm going to kill you and burn your house and take your stuff. It's nothing because I don't believe he's king because that decision affects all other decisions for the rest of your life. And our response of mockery, whether intentional or unintentional, demonstrates the response of our heart is, as the poem Invictus by William Ernst Henley says, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, we want to be in charge. We're the master. We're the captor. We call the shots. We decide how we live. And there's some this morning, you'd be here, and you would say, well, come on, pastor, I don't hate Jesus. I, I don't despise Jesus. But if you're honest, at the same time, you'd also say, I don't really want him to be the center of my life. See, we don't like it, but the reality is this. If he's king, it's an all-or-nothing choice, isn't it? But see, mocking him doesn't just indicate our heart's response that we don't like his royal claims. Mocking him also indicates this. We don't like or accept his weak ways. The Roman leaders, the religious leaders, the unbelieving criminal on the cross next to Jesus, they all say this in their own words. If you are the Christ, if you are the king, then you should do this. Basically, they're saying this. You couldn't be the king, Jesus. You couldn't be. It's not possible. If you're the savior, you can't be. You look too weak. You are too weak. If you're the king, they would say today, you would do this, not what you're doing. If you're the king, the Roman soldiers, they wouldn't be able to do this to you because here's what king means, powerful. See, you're the hero. But see, Jesus, you're not a hero. You're not strong enough. If God was with you, he'd be protecting you. He would never let all these things happen to you like this because here's what they say is true. God doesn't work through weakness. And so our mocking reveals this. Our unbelief and rejection of Jesus as we see him on the cross dying in our shame and our sin 
See, we mock that. Why? Because we can't stand and we cannot tolerate weakness and suffering, and we don't want it in his life because we don't want it in our lives. True? Disappointment after disappointment. Painful experience after painful experience. One after the other break on the shores of our lives. And we say things not knowing it's mocking, but we say this, oh, that's a loving God? No, thank you. Stop loving me so much, Lord, would you? We begin to question and say, hey, doesn't he see? Does he know what's going on or is he a little bit too busy to care about the details of my life? How long do I have to keep going through this? Does he really care? Or maybe this, we, we may not even say it out loud, but in our hearts we say, well, maybe he's not quite as powerful as he says he is. And we mock and we get angry and we become cynical toward God. And we begin to think that perhaps we know better how our life ought to go than he does. See, our mockery and those words and those thoughts demonstrate the response of our hearts. See, we resist God working in our lives if he has to do it through our weakness. He really couldn't be present with you, could he? If you let the things that are happening in your life take place, have you thought that? Have you said that when you're going through divorce and it's a mess and it's money that you don't have to spend and you look around and seeing what that divorce is doing to your children and the anxiety and the depression and all that goes with it and the doctor's appointment, maybe that's what you're thinking. You see, Pastor Walker, they just told me I have cancer I have this problem, I have this disease, and they've tried this medicine, and I don't know that it's going to work, and I don't know the prognosis of my future. Everything seems to be up in the air and uncertain. And you say, why does God let this happen to me? He has the power to change it. I've tried, you might say, another might say, I've tried for years and years, and I'm not getting any younger. I still haven't been able to have a child. I want a child. I want more than one child. I don't know if it's ever going to happen for me. I don't know how I'm going to pay these bills. I don't know how I'm going to make this mortgage. I don't know how I'm going to make it. And on, fact, on top of all of that, then I've lost my job. And you begin to say, is God really there? All these people in Luke 23, including the criminal on the cross, they say this to Jesus. Why don't you prove that you're a real king? Why don't you do some power? Why don't you come down off the cross and save us and save yourselves? Jesus, really, are you the king? If you could, if you were, you'd save us. And you wouldn't have weakness. You would have power. But see, they don't realize that the power they really need, not the power they want, is about Jesus not coming down off the cross, but staying up on one. I think for me, in this text, the scariest part of it is it's possible to look directly at the greatest thing that God has ever done in the history of human and mankind. And because we don't have categories that fit our definitions of greatness and of power, that we miss the entire scene of Easter and what it's all about. I would encourage you this morning, don't make that mistake. Don't be blind to the ways of God's weakness and how they work through Jesus to accomplish our salvation because your life depends on it. But see, there's two thieves on the cross that day. 
One responds negatively, blasphemes Jesus, wants him to be a different kind of king. But there's another one on there. See, one wants Jesus to be the king that solves their physical problems. Hey, Jesus, I'm being crucified. This is really suffering and pain. Get me off the cross. Knock out the Romans. See, there's a guy who sits there and says, Jesus, here's the king you should be. Solve my physical problems. But the other one, although not at first, he comes to the conclusion that he wants Jesus to be the kind of king that not, so, not just takes care of his physical problems, but more importantly, takes care of his spiritual problems. The one wants a power king. The other one sees what the weak king is all about. You see, there's one man up there on the cross next to Jesus who wants him to come down from the cross. And the one who finally recognizes what Easter is about wants him to stay up on the cross. There's one man that sees that there's no way Jesus could be king. And here's why. Because if you're the hero, if you're the king, we know this. Now, he hadn't watched any movies like we have. But he knows this. The hero always, always does something that they weren't predicting. He always finds a weakness in the defense of the enemies and utilizes it. He always turns the tables. He gets out of the handcuffs. He secretly picks the lock and gets out of the prison, right? He always does. So the thief says this, here's your time, Jesus, to be the hero. Come down off the cross and be the king and savior that I want you to be. But on the other side of Jesus, there's another guy. And he doesn't see no way that Jesus is king. He sees the way that Jesus is king. Because you see what the verse says in verses 40 and 41? The thief says, Are you, do you, don't you fear God? Seeing that you are in the same condemnation. You see, the one man sees Jesus being condemned and judged as a proof that he is not the king, that he's too weak to be the king. The other guy watches him and listens to him and how he forgives his enemies from the cross and how he commits himself to God. And he says, this man is under our condemnation, but he doesn't deserve to be. Do you see that? This man, he says, and I quote, has done nothing wrong. In the Greek, atapos, it means out of place. He says, look, look at, see, here's the first thing you got to realize. See, our life is out of place. So many things out of place in our lives. And we are the only ones who know the half of it. But this man's out of place life has become public but he looks at Jesus and says, this man has not one single thing out of place. And he realizes, why would God let him die like this? Why would he be condemned like we are? And he figures it out. God reveals it to him that he is using his power for my weakness. He doesn't deserve this cross. He is taking this cross for me. See, we are getting justice, and he is getting injustice. Why would he do it? And the question switches to this. For whom would he do it? And he says this to himself. For me. For me. You know, this man is the only person in the entire Gospel of Luke that in talking to Jesus calls him by his personal name. In our text, he says, Jesus, remember me. I don't know if it's true. It's a guess. 
that maybe looking at the titulus above his cross and seeing Jesus' name, Jesus, maybe this is the first time that he's ever known him or met him. And he looks up and says, I see the name, and I see the crime, and I believe you. He would say in our terms this morning, I choose everything. I choose all, not nothing. I choose, Jesus, to believe that your weakness will be my power. I choose to believe that you are going to save me by not coming down from this cross. I believe, Jesus, that you are the king, a different kind of king. And he says, not only do I believe you are the king, I believe you are my king. And he says such when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He realizes that his kingdom isn't going to be like the Roman one, not the one that's crucifying, but he's a different kind of king, and he has a different kind of kingdom. And so he responds in faith, remember me. But see, that's our response to Jesus. And you have to choose this morning, don't you? The two thieves will not allow it any other way. You have to choose, yes, I respond and receive him, or I respond and reject him. But if you receive him, may I close with this? Here's Jesus' response to you. He looks at the man who says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and he says, truly I say to you, and Jesus repeats that little introductory formulatic statement all throughout Luke's gospel, and all that it means is this. I want you to listen, Jesus says, because I'm going to say something so important, so vital that you can't miss it because you can build your life off of it. And you have to understand, when they're having a conversation on the cross, they can barely breathe because most people die on the cross from asphyxiation. You are nailed to the cross with your hands in their feet. You push off a little uh, wooden plat on the back called the sedile. You push up. You grab your own nails that have been ripped, put your, through your uh, wrists, and you pull up so that you can breathe air into your lung. And that's why every single phrase of Jesus on the cross and those who are talking to him are very short and staccato-like phrases because you have no oxygen and the agony is unbearable. In all of that, Jesus still wants to respond to this man and his suffering. In his suffering, Jesus is going to say, here's what I want to say to you. Truly, listen to this. It will be Jesus' last words. Today, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, it's used seven times in Luke's gospel, and every time it's used by Jesus or about Jesus. And every time it's about Jesus saying, this is going to happen because of me. Jesus is saying, you don't have to wait to be saved. You don't have to wait for the kingdom to come someday. You can be in the kingdom today. Today, you can be in the kingdom because I am the king. I am the king, and I bring salvation. I bring it today, and you can be with me. Now, do you understand? Because the first time since the garden, we couldn't go into God's presence, and at the paradise or garden of God, there was an angel there with a flaming sword, and it kept everyone out. You could not enter again because of our sin. And Jesus says this, I am absorbing the sword that you deserve the judgment, the penalty, the condemnation. And as of today, through my death, paradise is open. 
It's open to anyone who will put their faith and trust in me. Today you will be with me in paradise. The curse has been reversed. Forgiveness has been offered. The sword has been absorbed. And you today can have your life changed forever. Because Jesus never saves outsiders because they're outsiders. And he never rejects insiders because they're insiders. He only saves by grace. And you can get into paradise no matter who you are. The religious Joseph of Arimathea, the completely irreligious and immoral person on the cross, or somewhere in between. See, it doesn't matter what category that you fit into because whether insider or outsider, All of it's by grace. All of it's through his death and resurrection for our sins. But in order for that to take place in your life, you have to come to the realization that this salvation, forgiveness does not come because you are strong enough. You have to be weak enough. You have to recognize that no matter how good I have been or how bad I have been, It's not good enough. It's not what will save me. It's not being Baptist or Lutheran or Episcopalian or Catholic or Methodist or none of those things. It's not my religious affiliation. It's not my response to any of those things. It is my response to Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what that means for my life. And for this man, it meant paradise. What about you? How will you respond today? Oh, he is king. He is king. But is he your king? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around as we close our service this morning, everyone must choose. Which thief will you be? Oh, you've come to church perhaps many times or a lot of times in your life. You've been to so many Easter services, and you've seen Jesus, but you may not know him. Oh, I'm not saying you're not religious. I'm not saying that you hate him, but it might be that you really just don't want him to be your king, because when you consider the ramifications of all that means, the changes that would have to take place. You want to reserve your options. In order to come to him for salvation this morning and come to him for forgiveness of sins, in order to make him king, you have to say this first. I'm too weak to do it on my own. I'm too weak. I look at the cross. I don't see his weakness. I see mine. I see what it took for him to offer paradise to me. With every head bowed and every eye closed, perhaps as the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God have worked and spoke to your heart this morning, you say, Pastor Walker, I'll have to be honest. Maybe an insider or an outsider, whichever you may be, I want Jesus to be king. He isn't. Truthfully, he isn't. 
but I want him to be my king, my savior, my Lord. And this morning I admit I am too weak to be good enough on my own. I'll never make it or merit it. It's all of grace. And I realize that this morning. And I want to ask Jesus to come into my life and forgive my sins and to be my Lord and Savior, my God, my King. I've never done that before, but this morning, by his grace, I want to do that. Would you pray for me with no one looking? Just slip your hand up for a few moments, and I'll pray for you as we close our service. I don't know your name, but I'll pray for you. Just slip your hand up in the main floor, the auditorium, the balcony. So I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus, that he died and rose again so that I could be forgiven, that I could be saved. I want him to be my king. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand as well, too, on my right. Anyone else in the balcony? Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? I'll be down at the front this morning. If the Spirit of God is moving in your heart, walking an aisle or walking down here from the balcony or the main floor won't change anything. But what will get you is to the close to the front so that someone can take the Scriptures and that you can have life in His name. That King Jesus can save you and rule in your heart and life to be your Savior and Lord. Would you do that? Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus took our condemnation. He took the justice that we deserved, the wrath, the punishment. And he has made a way through his blood and his death and resurrection that we could conquer sin and hell and death. Oh, it looks so weak, but it is the most powerful event in all of history. Oh, I pray that you'd give eyes to see ears to hear, hearts that would believe, hearts that would be humble and see their weakness in light of your power to save. And for those who raise their hands, I pray, overcome their unbelief and give them hearts of repentance that you might give them the gift of faith that they might come to know Jesus as their Savior and their Lord and their King. For it's for his glory and in his name I pray. Amen.